music's over, it'll look like I'm coming to sing or something. And uh, I know no one wants that. Well, I'm just wondering, who's this grown man that looks so much like you that's sitting on the front row there, Eric? You know, uh, when I first uh, met Eric, he, I think you were, maybe you and Rebecca were dating, but she hadn't come to OBU yet. Is that right? So, I mean, he was a long way from marriage. And, uh, and uh, now it's uh, fun to watch uh, families develop and grow. And, and I appreciate Eric. <laughs> he always says nice things. He sometimes throws in a you know, embarrassing story about me. And he said this morning he wasn't going to do that. And I said that's because he doesn't have any more. He says he does have more, but I don't know about that. But uh, I really appreciate what he, what he did in showing love and respect to Dr. Wilkes. Uh, Tom Wilkes ended up here in T Tulsa area. Uh, living not too far from the church, and um, he was at a point in his life with his Parkinson's where uh, he, I'm sure he, he couldn't get out and do things he wanted to do, so I know how much it meant that Eric regularly, weekly, uh, was going by and, and just showing appreciation and love to him, and um, all the way until Dr. Wilkes' death, and I think you were there when he died, and then this week, uh, we were honoring him and his legacy at OBU. And, of course, Eric was the natural person to speak in chapel for that. And he did get to do that, piped in, and it went fine. It went well. Students are, have adjusted more to that now. So it was a great day, and he honored Dr. Uh, Wilkes so wonderfully. And that's a blessing to me. And, and you know, that's what makes uh, teaching at OBU such one of the things such a blessing is Students like Eric who show appreciation and respect and keep co in contact, and I've appreciated that with me. So at the point when I end up in a nursing home or something someday, I hope I'm in the area where you are, Eric. And now, we're close enough in age, we might be in there together. But that'd be, that, would, that would be fun, too. So <laughs> we'll see how that all plays out. Stay tuned for that. So the text this morning is 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 5, going through chapter 2, verse 2. So we're in a little bit of reverse order here. Last Sunday morning was uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 16, which makes that fundamental foundational claim that God is love in verse 8. And I didn't know then that I was going to be coming back today, but uh, when, when Eric invited me to do that, I thought, oh, well, that'd be perfect. I can now catch the other foundational claim, God is light. And, and that's what this text uh, will point us to. I don't know about you, uh, but I've never been comfortable in the dark. And I'm still not. When I was a kid, uh, you know, I remember wanting a nightlight. I wanted a light on in my room. And I know why I wanted a light on, because I feared that there might be creatures under my bed or in the closet and in the darkness after my mom had gone to sleep and maybe I'd going to sleep, those creatures might come out of the shadows and grab me and do unimaginable things to me. And I mean unimaginable because I couldn't imagine what the creature would do, but whatever it was, I didn't want to find out. So I wanted a light on. That put me at ease. I could go to sleep if there was a light. And then we lived, my house and my grandmother's house were connected by a yard. It was about 100 meters, I think. I'm not good with the metric system although they told me I'd really need to be when I was in school, but it never came to, pay, to pass. But I think it's something like 100 meters, but very, very close. And it seemed like it was probably in the summertime when my mother would often tell me I needed to go over to my grandmother's house, and it was after dark. 
And there, there was no fence between. I mean, we could just move back and forth between the two yards. And I'm confident that even at like age 10 or 12, I could have qualified for the 100 meters in the Olympics from my back door to my grandmother's front door. Because I'd run as hard as I could run. As soon as I got out of the light of my kitchen, which was at that back door, to the light of her front porch, I was, I was sprinting. And then we had, in my hometown, there's a park there, the Cumberland Gap National Historical Park. It's where Daniel Boone crosses through and is part of that westward expansion of the United States. But that park also has a cave. Now, it's called the Gap Cave now, but most of my life it was called Cudjo's Cave. And if you traveled up 25E, uh, going from like my hometown, Middlesboro, to like Knoxville, Tennessee, you'd travel up, up a mountain, and that road no longer exists, by the way. They, they, they made a tunnel through the mountain, but you used to have to drive up that mountain. And, and you reached the top, there was a little uh, market there, and the sign that said Cudjo's Cave, and you'd go in there, and you could buy a soft drink or get a candy bar, and you could buy a ticket for a tour of Cudjo's Cave. And you had to actually walk across 25E, which I'm sure was very dangerous, walk across 25E up the, up the ramp, Cudjo's Cave. I can picture it right now. Well, I used to go to Cudjo's Cave when uh, we had family visiting. They, I mean, there wasn't that much to do, so they'd want to see Cudjo's Cave. It was one of, the, one of the things you did when you came to my hometown. And I was probably six or seven, something like that, when I can recall going there for the first time. We'd bought our ticket. We were part of a group of maybe 15, 16, 17 people. It was my, my mother and some family members and then some people that I just joined the tour. I remember as we were, we were beginning the tour, noticing it's kind of dark in here. Now, there was primitive light. You know, it was pretty basic lighting, but enough so that I'm not panic-stricken. But as we continue deeper and deeper into the cave, I, I start noticing it, it feels like it's, it's becoming a bit darker and darker, although I could still see the path. And thankfully, the guide had a flashlight just in case. And I remember this is the first time I saw stalagmites, you know, these uh, deposits that build coming up off the floor and stalactites coming down from the ceiling. Huh? You remember? That's the first time. Also, while we're walking on the tour, the tour guide is telling us how the cave came to be called Cudjo's Cave. And he tells a story that was part of a piece of literature that had been written in the 1800s, but that it was named after the legend was a slave who'd escaped in the Civil War area, and slaves often hid out in this cave. And Cudjo was one of those slaves. He was found by, civil, uh, by uh, Confederate officers, and he'd been killed in the cave. This was the legend. And that some people say the ghost of Cujo is still in the cave. Now, I'm six, seven, eight years old, getting deeper and deeper into the cave, hearing the story of Cujo, or Cudjo. And um, then we, we get to this area of the cave where we, we sort of get into what looks like a room, an, a, a large room, and he called it a chamber of some type, and he's standing there talking, and I'm feeling somewhat nervous about the situation, and then that ranger did something that I shall never forget. Something that I would consider pure evil. He somehow turned off the lights. And now I'm standing here in this cave, in the darkness, and I mean total darkness. 
the kind of darkness where you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's the darkest darkness I've ever seen or not seen. And, and I was panic-stricken. And I did what any six-year-old in that moment would do. I reached to the right and grabbed my mother's leg and held on, praying that he would turn the light back on quickly. And it seemed like he was talking and saying some things, but I wanted him to turn the light back on, and finally he did. And feeling a great sense of relief, I looked up into my mother's eyes, only to find it was not my mother. I was clinging to the leg of a complete stranger. And as a result of that, I would say today, don't, don't let anyone ever tell you there's nothing to fear in the dark. You might just be clinging to a stranger's leg. And so, at, after the opening, after the prologue, John says, and it is this message which we heard from him and which we declare to you, that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or faithful and righteous in order to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you in order that you might not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is our atoning sacrifice for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So John begins here with a foundational claim, a fundamental statement about who God is. God is light. Now that's verse 5. And then from verse 6 on to the end of this, that's the foundational claim. That's his statement of what is true. What he follows up with then are three false claims, either about God or about the nature of our relationship with God. So we're going to begin with a foundational claim and then three false claims that he refutes. And so, let us begin with the foundational claim in verse 5. God is light. He says in verse 5, And it is this message which we heard from him, and we declare to you that God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. Now this is one of the two foundational statements about God in 1 John. The other one was last Sunday morning. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. That's near the end of 1 John. Now, here at the very beginning, after the prologue, God is light. Now, that's not to say that God gives light, although that would be true, or somehow God is responsible for light, although that would be true. It's more essential than that. God is light. It's a statement about God's nature, about God's essence, just like God is love. If you could somehow look inside the DNA of what it means to be God, there will be light and there will be love. And when you think about light, and you think about the creation account, 
Light is the first fundamental property of the universe created by God. And God said, let there be light. Because apart from light and without light, there can be no life. Life cannot be sustained without light. And so to say that God is light is to say something about how essential God is to the creation and the sustenance of all that exists. It's a foundational, fundamental claim about God that God is light. Now, light is a symbol when he says God is light. But what does that symbol point to specifically? I would say it points to the, the essential uh, nature of God and, and he's foundational for life. But more specifically, what could we say about the claim that God is light? I think it's a claim that, of God's holiness. The image of light is identified with purity or holiness. You might hear the words of Leviticus 19 too, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Holiness is a property that belongs to God. It's intrinsically inherent that God is holy. And then in John 3.20, listen to the way we hear about light and darkness. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Here's the image of light, and it drives out that which is evil or impure or profane. It wants no part of the light. Why? Because the light is holy. It reveals what is evil and what is unclean and what is impure. Uncleanness, sin, evil hates the light and will avoid it at all costs. And later in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, Jesus, as he often does in John's Gospel, is in Jerusalem for a festival. The festival he's in town for in John 10 is called the Festival of Dedication or the Feast of Dedication or the Festival of Lights or is it sometimes known as Hanukkah. So around Christmas time, if uh, somebody wishes you Happy Hanukkah, they're referring to the festival that Jesus is in Jerusalem for in John chapter 10. It is a, a festival, a week-long festival, whose origin goes back to 167 B.C. when the Jewish people in Palestine were being ruled by the Seleucids. Seleucus had been a governor of Alexander the Great, or a general of Alexander the Great. And after Alexander's death, he'd claimed that territory known as where's Syria, and it was the Seleucid dynasty. And he had decided that these Jewish people weren't sort of getting with the program. They weren't they weren't integrating into the pagan empire. And so he said, you can't practice your religion anymore. If you're found with a copy of the law, it'll be burned and you'll die. If you're caught circumcising your eight-day-old baby boy, he'll be killed, you'll be killed, and he'll be hung around your neck and displayed publicly. And there were a number of these. You think about all the things that are important in Jewish practice, he said you can't do it. And then he said, here's what you will do. You will sacrifice a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies. And that actually happened. It has a date, 25 Kislev, roughly around mid to late December on our calendar. A pig was sacrificed on the altar in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. 
Now, if you want to do something that's going to be offensive and that's going to make a Jewish person feel defiled in ways that's hard to express with words, then you take the unclean animal and sacrifice it on the altar in the most holy place. Here is an unclean animal on the holy altar. It's, it's an it's a ugly image. And eventually Jewish people rose up against this, this, this decree. And it was a priest named Mattathias who out in a nearby uh, village refused to do it, which led to this, a revolt against this decree and against the Seleucid dynasty. Three years later to the day, 25 Kislev, when the, when the swine was sacrificed on that altar, three years to the day later, the Maccabean uh, prince, king, Judas Maccabeus, won back control of the temple and they rededicated it to God. Now, I've seen some cleaning that happens because of COVID. I've seen spraying seats and using wipes. I'm sure you have no idea how much greater they were cleaning out that holy place from the possible trace of, a, of any slightest bit of blood from a pig that might be in that holy place. They cleaned it out. They purified the place. They rededicated it to God. And they said, because the, the, the candles burned for a week when there was only enough oil for a day, we're going to make it a week-long celebration and call it the Festival of Lights or the Festival of Dedication. And the word for dedication in Hebrew is Hanukkah. That's the story. It's about cleaning out the impurities, cleaning out the, the unholiness, and dedicating it to God. And Jesus shows up in Jerusalem at that festival, goes into the temple, and he's already declared that he's the Son of God, and they want to throw rocks at him. And at that moment, here's what he says in John 10, 36. The one, the I am the one the Father has made holy. And sent into the world. That image. The festival of lights. And Jesus declaration. That the father has made him holy. Bringing together those two ideas. Is, is a beautiful image. To say that God is light. Is to say that God is holy. God's holiness means. That he's absolutely separate. And he is distinct. From everything that is unclean. Or impure. To say that God is holy points to his absolute purity. That he is unstained by sin and evil. And that he is perfectly good at all times and in every way. God is light. That's also to say that God is truth. In fact, if you look in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie, and you'd expect him to say, and we don't walk in the light. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, the natural conclusion of that would be, we lie and we, walk, we don't walk in the light. But look at how he phrases it. We lie and we do not do the truth. It, it's almost as if he substituted truth for light. We lie and we do not do the truth which is a, a beautiful phrase, do the truth. I think we think about truth as something we say. We speak the truth, and hopefully we do. 
But in John's vocabulary, speaking the truth is not enough. It's one thing to, to sort of have wordy faith. It's another thing for your deeds, your actions to match up with the words you speak. We do the truth. Don't just tell me the truth. Show me the truth. Do the truth. Well, if we, if, if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we're not doing the truth. And we lie. Because obviously, we're walking in darkness. This brings together the ideas of light and truth. In John 3, 21, Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. To say that God is light is to say that God is truth. He is the source of all that is true, and it is impossible for God to lie. Everything God says and everything God does is true. And whatever is true is true because it corresponds with Him. And then, God is holy. it shows God's holiness, it shows that God is truth, it also shows that God is revelation. It makes a, an essential statement about the nature of God. God is the kind of God who makes Himself known. Think about the whole idea of the light coming on. If you've got a, if you've got a light bulb over your head and you can think about pulling the chain and the light comes on, what's that mean? It means, aha, I got it, I understand. It's about understanding, the light coming on, revelation. Well, God is the kind of God who makes himself known. He does it in general ways. In fact, you think about someone who never hears a preacher, who never hears a word of the Bible preached to them, is it possible for them to know there is a God? Well, Scripture indicates absolutely yes. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And then at the end, a few verses later, their voice, that is the heavens and the skies and the hills, their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. They speak no words and yet their words go out. It's, it's an image, it's, it's a portrait of when you look at all that God has made, there is a revelation of God there. In the creation, God has revealed himself to human beings. And then Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. That which is known about God is evident within, within them, within human beings. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly known being understood by what has been made so that they are without excuse. No one can say, if, if we stand before God and we stand before God guilty and God says, why did you not believe? No one can say insufficient evidence. There is sufficient evidence in the created order. When you look at the stars, when you look at the ocean, when you look at the power of a tornado, you see something of the invisible qualities of God, something about his nature, because he has made it known. He's made himself known in what he has made. But then there's a more specific way that God has revealed himself in his word. Psalm 119, 105, 
God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. That God enlightens the path of understanding and knowledge so that we can know his will and his way. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. What a beautiful image of God's revelation. Those walking in darkness have seen a great light. And then you might recognize Isaiah 9. You might recognize it more from verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In that child that would be born that we celebrated at Christmas, a couple, you know, two months ago, that was God revealing himself to human beings in the ultimate way. In his son who'd taken upon himself human flesh. That's what Simeon the prophet realizes when Jesus is brought to the temple and he sees him there. Here's what the prophet says in Luke 2, 31 and 32. He took him in his arms and praised God saying, My eyes have seen your salvation which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon said, I saw the light. Does that remind you of a song? Now you got to be a certain generation to know that to, to, for the song to be echoing in your head right now. But I saw the light, right? I saw the light. Come on, come on, come, let's go. Philip, you're going to help me out here. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more in darkness, no more in night. Now I'm so happy, no darkness in sight. Praise the Lord. Amen. You know what you were declaring? I saw the light. God revealed himself to me. I saw him. I understood. I recognized that he is God. I saw the light. God is light. He is holy. He is truth. And he reveals himself to us. And what is true of the Father is true of the Son. John 1, 9, Jesus it says, is the true light that gives light to everyone coming into the world. Jesus is holy. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the light revealing himself to us. Now here's the transition. That's the foundational claim. God is light. If you take anything away today, that's what I want you to take away. God is light and some of what that entails. But in John's day, as in our own day, there are voices in the public square who have false notions and false claims about the nature of God and what it means to be in relationship with him. And John points out three of those false claims. And the first one is in verse, verse 6. And each false claim, one in verse 6, one in verse 8, one in verse 10, begin with the phrase, if we say, or if we claim. So here it is, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. So here's false claim number one. It is possible to have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. John presents that as a false claim. It is not true. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. That's false claim number one. Think about how the image of darkness is used in John's gospel. 
it is always that which is hostile to or at enmity with the light. Darkness is a way of capturing that which is evil, that which is impure, that which is contrary to God's purposes in the world. Therefore, God is light. No one can claim to have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I have a relationship with God, or yeah, God and I, we have fellowship, we're cool. John insists that truth manifests itself in actions. We lie and do not do the truth. Truth is something that must be verified by the way we act, the way we live, not merely by our words. Now here's the counterclaim. Verse 7. So they say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. Here's what John says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, one, and two, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now there's the true claim against their false claim that they have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness. He says, oh no. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Those are the two consequences of those who walk in the light. One, we have fellowship with other believers. Beware of overly individualistic Christianity. You know that my, my Christianity is about me and Jesus. As if we don't need one another. As if, if, I can, I, if I do my daily quiet time and I've got a good personal relationship, which that's all I need. That's not biblical New Testament Christianity. We need one another. Christianity is not something to be done in isolation or alone. It is something that we do together with our brothers and our sisters. And we're given to individualism. We highly prize it in the West. I would say we need to be careful of bringing that and baptizing it into the church. I'd say also beware of fostering deep personal relationships with those who are not believers. Now, I'm not saying not to have relationships with believers. I'm saying your deepest relationships should be with brothers and sisters in Christ. And Eric used the passage from 2 Corinthians about being unequally yoked. I think that's one way to understand being unequally yoked. It's it's fellowship that is too deep with those who are not in Christ. And then the second is we have fellowship with one another and then we are cleansed through the blood of Jesus. This is the thing we need most. This is the thing that is our deepest need. Education is important. Technology is important. We need lots of things. But the thing we need above all is to have our sins washed away because we are sinful people. The teaching of Jesus is central to our lives, but before the teaching of Jesus, we need the blood of Jesus. We need to be cleansed. We need our sins to be taken care of, to be washed away so that we can have fellowship with the Father. And this is a consequence of walking in the light. False claim two in verse eight. He says, if we say that we do not sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's false claim number two. It is possible to live sinless lives. To claim we do not have sin, present tense, looks like 
at the present time, ongoing action, we do not have sin, is to claim perhaps that somehow I'm in Christ now, so my sin doesn't count, or it doesn't matter, or God doesn't even recognize it now, now that I'm in Christ. Now, I'm not talking about your sins before you express faith in Jesus. I'm talking about some sin that has been committed today. I guess you could say, I'm in Christ, so God no longer sees that. So, we do not have sin. Or perhaps they're saying, well, I'm not in violation of any laws in the land. Maybe they're equating laws in the civil society with God's laws. So that if I'm not convicted under the laws of the land, then I don't have sin. Or maybe they were just people so self-deceived that they were able to rationalize whatever their actions were and deny it was sin. But however it was happening and whatever they were doing, John responds to that. Well, that's verse 8. He says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Self-deception is a dangerous thing. What's the counterclaim in verse 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now there's the true claim. If we confess our sins. Now that word confession is a wonderful Greek word. It's a compound word. It means to say the same thing. Homo, 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 The homo means same. Legeo, lagos, it means to say or speak. It means to say the same thing. Say the same thing. Yes, it means that we agree with God about our sin. To confess your sin is to agree with God, is to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. It's more than just an apology. It's more than just a, I'm sorry. It's a recognition, recognition about how terrible sin really is and how destructive it is. It is to agree with God about our sin. True confession allows the brilliant light of God's truth about ourselves and our sin to shine the light in the darkness, to shine that brilliant light of God's holiness on our sin. To confess is to agree with God, I did it, I mourn it, and I want to stop it. That's true confession. And it's not just that I want my past to be forgiven. It's not just I want to confess what I did in the past so my past sins are forgiven. It is the desire to live a holy life in the present and going forward into the future. It's a present tense. Continually confess. If we continually confess our sins, if in an ongoing way, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our forgiveness is not rooted in the confessor or even in the power of the confession. It is in that God is, as he says here, faithful and just. That's how we are forgiven ultimately. Because he is faithful and he is just. It's not because the confessor 
this particularly good guy. And then false claim number three, the final one. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, it sounds essentially the same statement as he said in verse 8. We say that we do not have sin. But he does change the tense. Present tense, if we say that we presently do not have sin, that's, the, that's false claim too. Here he changes the tense to a tense that means usually we, we, we do not have sin in the sense that we live in a state of sinlessness. It's almost as if he's downplaying just how serious sin is. So here's what I think the third claim, false claim is. Sin's not really our problem. We have other problems. We have lots of problems that need to be addressed, but sin is not really the problem. And his response to that, if that's what you think, if you think you have other problems bigger than sin, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. His counterclaim to that is chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, or my dear children, I write these things to you in order that you might not sin, and if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy One. We have an advocate with the Father. Here's, here's the counterclaim. You think sin's not a problem? It is a problem, and, and we're going to stand before God and be responsible and accountable. Here's the counterclaim. We have an advocate with the Father. We have a lawyer. It's the Greek word paraclete. John, uh, Jesus uses it in John 14 to say, I'm going to send another paraclete, another advocate talking about the Holy Spirit. But here it's Jesus who is the advocate. He is our lawyer. Now if you're looking for a good lawyer, who do you want to represent you? How about Jesus Christ, the righteous one? I want him to be my lawyer because one of his skill in representing us. What lawyer can you find that will say, my client should be treated as if he's not guilty because I have already paid the price for what he's done? I don't think you see many lawyers going to prison for their clients. Suffering the consequences that should be on the client, they take it upon themselves. Who can argue that for you apart from him? And then it's his standing before the judge, before the father. We've heard a lot here recently of lawsuits, you know, like in November and December that got dismissed. Why? Because for whatever reason, I don't fully understand all of this, they didn't have standing. You've heard that phrase though recently. I don't know if I'd ever heard that phrase. Well, I can promise you this lawyer has standing before the father he's our lawyer he's our advocate no matter how you may groan under the realization of sin in these verses where he says if you claim to walk in the light and yet walk in darkness you lie and don't do the truth there's so much here that might make us be down and feel badly about and yet here's where the light floods in we have an advocate we have a lawyer with the father jesus christ the righteous one and then, one other verse too, and he is our atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Now the image moves from a courtroom where we need an advocate, a lawyer, and we have one in Jesus. Now the image moves to the temple. And now we're in that place where the Holy of Holies 
and the altar and the blood is sprinkled there. We need a priest. We need someone to be our advocate, our go-between. And here is Jesus, the priest who is sprinkling his own blood. What a beautiful image of who Jesus is for those who will confess their sins. He is our advocate in court. He is our priest in the temple making the atoning sacrifice. And this for the whole world. Confess your sins and walk in the light.